You're listening to Enhancing the Human Experience. This is episode 67. My guest today is Kayla Leah Rich. Kayla is an author, a coach, a speaker, and also deeply involved with an organization called Days for Girls. Now, we talk about all that in the podcast, including her new project, Purple Crayon Confidence, the 18-Day Challenge. That starts on June 18th. I actually first met Kayla about a year ago at TEDx Boise 2017. I was introduced to her by my good friend Alejandro Anastasio, and I was really blown away by Kayla's speech. Title of the speech was titled, The Cost of Menstrual Shame. And she talked about the plight that women and girls go through in third world countries and even right here at home when it comes to managing their menstrual cycle. And that was a huge eye opener to me. Since that time, I've read her book, Purple Crayon Confidence, and followed her work, and I recently invited her to be a guest on the show. So without further ado, let's get into the show. Okay, welcome to this episode of Enhancing the Human Experience. My guest today is Kayla Leah Rich, and I'm going to go through here her list of credits and accomplishments. It's going to take a minute because she's such a rock star, and then we're going to invite her in the show here. So Kayla is the author of Purple Crayon Confidence, a strategic workbook to build and maintain self-assurance, and it has over 92% five-star reviews. The reviews are glowing. Mine is one of them. We'll talk about that in a moment. She's also a TEDx speaker. She spoke in 2017 about the cost of menstrual shame. And this was a huge eye-opener for me as a man. I learned so much about the struggles that women go through around our globe about this issue. She is also the North Regional Director of Days for Girls, which is a nonprofit organization that provides feminine hygiene products to girls around the world. And she does extensive work in Haiti. And last but not least, she just released a new course called Purple Crayon Confidence 18-Day Challenge, and she's also a coach around helping people develop more confidence. Kayla, welcome to Enhancing the Human Experience. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. So I I feel we've got a lot to talk about in this episode because you do so much. And so um, for for starters, what I like to do is kind of give the audience a little bit of a backstory, um, maybe, you know, kind of what led you to this point in your life? And I like to catch a little glimpse of what you were like as a kid. What, what were your interests? What was your childhood like? Oh my goodness. I was just talking to somebody about this this morning, how I love to spend most of my afternoons, especially a summer day, just like today in the sandbox, you know, just making cities and discovering what I could build, burying myself in the sand. We also had a great backyard where we could put the sprinkler underneath the trampoline and, we had a tether ball, and all the neighborhood kids would come over and play, and we would have kickball games. That's like my younger childhood. Of course, we all kind of grow out of that sandbox phase, and I was a very awkward teenager. I, I got a horrible haircut when I was in middle school. That was <laughs> me for life or ever cutting my hair too short. But um, I, as, as many people go through their teenage years trying to get a sense of self, I really struggled with knowing what my talents were and feeling like people liked me and thinking that maybe I was doing it wrong. And that if they only knew how it was at my house, they wouldn't like me. So 
there's those insecurities that I think snuck in in my teenage years, but some of the things I enjoyed were drama and debate. I was heavily involved. I was a total debate nerd, and I claim it to this day because <laughs> great skills. Um, so that's what my youth looked like. I had siblings, five other siblings, so our house was always full of laughter and maybe some squabbling and just a lot of fun and a lot of love. I can imagine. Yeah. Five siblings. Well, so yeah, those teenage years, they can, they can wreak some havoc on the, on the human being, right. As we go, as we go through there. But so, so talk about after you graduated high school and then, you know, cause I kind of look at that as another segment, you know, give us, you can go as in-depth as you, as you want to, but I'd love to know what your journey has been from say high school, because it's kind of a, you know, a transitionary point into a, adulthood quote unquote. So take us from high school up into your point now, what, what have you done that has brought you to this um, point? Just talk about your journey, if you would. Right. Well, I'm still waiting for the day when I feel like an adult. <laughs> but um, I actually got married fairly young. I was 20 years old when I got married, and I have I had four children in my 20s, which is not the typical route. I um, ran a drywall company with my husband, but then started off building homes as a residential contractor myself. Pretty interesting because most people thought that it was my spouse. Um, it is a pretty male-dominated industry, at least it was during that time. Um, and I, I learned that I was really good at it, and that was kind of fun. But I was also different than some of the other moms and families that I was around. And there are some insecurities that continue to creep into my world as far as, am I doing this mom thing right? And how do I keep house? And how do I adult and every time you transition into a new phase, whether it's from high school into independence on your own or college or out of college into the job market, becoming a spouse or a partner or becoming a, a mother, for me at least, um, every time another role got added, it was really easy for me to think, I don't know what I'm doing. And kind of having that insecurity. But I started also to realize that when I started to play in my strengths, the things I was good at that brought me joy that made me more confident. And those little nibbles of confidence is what really helped me to start sharing that with others, to choose things in their world that brought them joy and do it the way they wanted to do it. And I believe because of that, it started to grow from there, my ability to become more confident in who I am. And I just have this, this inside yearning to share anything I'm learning with other people. And so I started sharing that out. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, isn't that funny that life gives us these plateaus just when we think we've got a, a handle on it, <laughs> we reach a new plateau and it's like, you know, reset the game, doesn't it? Oh yeah. And there's so many things that can cause that like moves. Even I've moved several times just in my own community that always shifted my confidence changes in job roles. Like you may be the most confident uh, skilled person, but you add some new roles or new technology you have to learn. And suddenly you feel like you're going back to square one and uh, it does develop some insecurities, but there's ways to work through it, of course, but there's, that's what life is. Life is change and you need to learn how to roll with the changes and still have a sense of self. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. At what point in time uh, on your journey, did you realize that you know, you would have the confidence to do whatever, because you do strike me as a person, a woman who does have the confidence to do whatever is in front of you. At, at what point in the last, you know, from high school to now, did you realize, hey, I, I got it, I can do it? Well, I had a couple of different 
things, it, I think it comes into venturing into that unknown territory. When I started to put my toes into things that I didn't really know a lot about, but I had a strong desire to learn about. And I realized that just because I didn't already know something doesn't mean that's a barrier for me to try new things. For example, like building homes. Or um, I started with some girlfriends. I started a, a charter school, which is kind of a big undertaking. And um, I had young children at the time. And I didn't know whether or not I was going to be able to do it. But once I got in, I had a really strong desire and a sense of why. And that helped me to realize that I could do anything I wanted to. Like, I'm not even kidding you, Mark. Right now, I feel like if I wanted to become president, mm-hmm. I could. I could achieve that in my life. Um, and I think part of that comes with exercising in the small things. I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to try. And then finding success. And then maybe even reattempting to do it even better. And then when you do that in the small things, then it starts to transition into more uh, larger things in your life. Mm-hmm. So bigger ventures where you're like, well, if I could, I mean, gosh, if I could raise four boys. Yeah. Then- yeah, yeah. 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 You're outnumbered there in your household, aren't you? <laughs> yes. So I am outnumbered. And I do think for, for me, Having children, for example, is something that has strengthened my confidence because there's so much to learn continually and try to become better at and to look back and realize like, hey, well, I didn't know how to do that before and I do now. And I know um, my strengths and I know some of the things that maybe I'm not as good at yet. And that is all elements to building confidence and self-assurance. Yeah, I think just from my own experience and also seeing other people struggle with confidence, it almost seems like it's a... You know, it's like it's like the curve of mastery. You know, it's really slow to to in, improve in the beginning, and then slow and slow and slow, and then it almost hits this like exponential point where it's just like you said, the steps and the things that you're doing are bigger and bigger and bigger, and it just compounds. Would you say that's your experience with this confidence game? Absolutely. You know, it, it started with realizing myself that I could develop and strengthen confidence, that it's not something that you were just born with and what you had is what you got, that it was something I could change. And then as I started to do that, and of course, having this natural desire to help others, you, you know, the studies have shown if you teach other people what you've learned, it helps you to be able to retain it more. So I had this desire to teach others. And as I did that, I realized how necessary it was. And so it went from sharing with a couple of friends to sharing in small groups to being able to intentionally gather people to share this message with. And that's kind of what has led into me um, writing the book Purple Crayon Confidence and then also starting this next um, journey, which is this 18-day confidence challenge where you interact in an online setting and get challenges every day and have some of that um, coaching, if you will. It as you can see, just based on the example you gave, it kind of started out small, but now it's gotten so big. And part of that is because the world needs it. There's enough voices telling us that we're not enough. If we would only buy this product, if we only weighed this amount, if we only had longer eyelashes, then maybe we would be. And so to have a voice that says, hey, like, let's take a look at where you're at right now, really get to know you, build your self-confidence and self-assurance, and then go out and do whatever it is that your heart is yearning to do. Um, so now I'm able to spread this message and people send me either private messages or send me cards in the mail or you know message out on Amazon as book reviews, the impact that these very specific strategies 
have been able to have in their life. And that, of course, makes me want to do it even more. Yeah, I, I can totally imagine. You know, let's let's talk about your book here. So you mentioned something. I was going to ask this later on, but I'm, I think this is a good time to do it. You talked about the process in your work and in your book and on other uh, other content I've seen of yours that that building confidence is a process. And you just talked about that. And I think the, from what I see is that we we do live in this world where it's kind of like people think you've you've either got something or you don't. You're either you know attractive or you're not, or you're smart or you're not, or you're unconfident or you're confident. Are you finding that in, in your work with people, they don't realize they can develop it? Well, some of it is the languaging that they use. I have a lot of people who just say flat out, I'm not confident. Well, that in itself is very limiting. It says, this is what I am. I am always going to be this way. And I've always been this way. And so to convince them that this is something that can be changed, um, what it's important and it does take a little bit of convincing, but then there's another group of people who I think realize that confidence might be developed, but aren't necessarily sure how a lot of people tell us why we should be confident. I think we get the why, like we look out into the world and we see examples of people who are confident and we think, man, that's awesome. But we don't always know how to get from where we're at to that position of confidence where they can go out and do whatever it is they are meant to do or, and not just do, but be, I mean, have you ever been around a, a person who seems so self-assured, so confident that just the way they carry themselves, whether they're doing or speaking at all, um, just the way they carry themselves says that they have this internal sense of confidence, this foundation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally can relate with that. I have been, I have met people like that. And you know, that's one of the reasons why I liked your book. And the way I describe your book to people is that I, I look at it as like a blend and I, and maybe a three-part blend of entertaining stories, how-to strategies, and also knowledge and wisdom, a lot of it based on biblical and you have your inside of God section. Kayla, I got to say, I, I thought your book was exceptional and I've read books that are like bestsellers on, you know, Wall Street Journal and New York Times, and they're not as good as your book. <laughs> so congratulations. Oh, my God. That's a great compliment. Thank you, Mark. Um, and I do love the description that you had of my book. I think I might just have to snag that and use that as an example on my next uh, edition. And, and I'll quote you on that. But um, do. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to do it because well, one of the things that I I realized as I was reading it, now all my friends give me a hard time because because I don't read especially nonfiction personal development books from cover to cover. I jump in and jump out and dabble and I've got, you know, maybe 10 or 15 going at one time. And But yours, I did read cover to cover. And as I go back and ask myself why that was, it was because of those entertaining stories. And like I said, the there was value in like three sections and I, it kept me interested. I got value out of it and I was engaged because you do call your reader to take action and do the exercises. Oh, I'm glad that the way I strategically planned it came across. I, and I'm not wanting to knock other authors in this genre, but I have too done the same thing where I grab personal development books. I get in, grab some nuggets and then, and then it, the rest of it is left unread. And sometimes I wonder, I'm like, okay, you're telling me the same thing over and over again. And I already got it. Okay. Like yeah, maybe it could have been a pamphlet that it got stretched out to be a book. Um, one of the things that I did not want to do was to do that, you know, to be where I'm over 
uh, overdoing the topic. Like, you know, most people are pretty intelligent and they can get the point. And I liked the fact that there wasn't a lot of redundancy, that each chapter stands alone and it has some content. And, and I do, I start off with a story, some way to illustrate based on my own life experiences or others, a principle. And then I show you a practice that I've done with that principle and then do a challenge where you're taking on that same practice or a similar practice to get to the principle. I also like, um, even though I do mention some biblical teachings, it's not the bulk of the book that's at the end of each chapter. So that based on how somebody feels, there's still value in the content. And if they want to delve into that section called inside of God, then they can add to the experience by reading it. So it kind of has something for everyone. Yeah. And I, and I can totally see that I, um, the inside of God was subtle enough to be to be valuable, but also, like you said, if it wasn't for someone, they could have easily just skipped it and moved on. I, I thought it was well, well done. Thank you. Well, and I do like people to be able to choose in. And when they read the book, sometimes I tell people, just go ahead to the table of contents and pick a chapter that seems like I want to learn about that because it's meant to be independent. You can bounce around. You can choose which chapter you want to start with. You you don't necessarily have to have it build on the previous chapter. And so it's a great way for somebody to customize their experience to fit them based on what they already have that they think that they're feeling good at and the areas that, that maybe they're struggling a little bit more. Of course, cover to cover is a great way to also read it, but mm-hmm. I like that it's stackable and digestible. Yeah. How long, because I want to talk about the process briefly of you writing that book, because because it's just so complete and so well-rounded. How long did it take you to write it? And what did you learn about yourself in that process? Awesome. Well, I had I been time tracking, I think that I would have a better answer for you for how long it took me to write. I could probably quantify it in the number of skipped family meals or order out that we had to do that like, hey, Dad, why don't you go get the bag of burgers from Arctic Circle, because I'm having a chapter I want to work on. Um, the process was really interesting for me because I, this is my first book and I didn't want to, um, I wanted to be able to get it out to the world. And I knew if I would have started like page one, that I would have come to a, 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 a wall pretty quickly. And I want to encourage anybody who is considering writing to maybe um, see if the process that I took might be helpful for them. So instead of starting at the beginning, I just took a vignette, something I knew that I wanted to share in the book, and I didn't know where it was going to fall in line yet, but I had words and things I wanted to express based on an experience. And so I just started there. And maybe where I started ended up being like chapter 12 or chapter 14. I'm not, I wasn't, um, I wasn't stopping to think, where is this going to fit in the book? It was just a principle I knew I wanted to share. And so I kind of was able to start and continue based on like, oh, and then there's this experience. This is a really good one. And I want to be able to incorporate this and then just write these vignettes and then step back, take a look at the order, rearranging the vignettes to have some sort of sequential purpose, but not necessarily like because you can skip around. So being that way was really helpful. So I didn't have to fixate on like, oh, is this strong enough of a beginning or is this, that can kind of, that the beginning and the ending are sometimes difficult. And if you start at the most difficult part, you lose some of your momentum. So, and then another thing that I did was each chapter has the same template, if you will. And I kind of discussed that earlier, like, you know, a story, a principle, a practice. And then at the end of each section, as you notice, like there was quotes from others. There was a section called insight of God. 
there was a section on your education that's E-D-Y-O-U-C-A-T-I-O-N, where they're learning about themselves. That's where your challenge comes in. And then one last section about how you might be able to teach others to develop confidence. And so having that basic template for each chapter made it almost easy for me to drag and drop, if you will, from my brain onto the pages, the rest of that book. Yeah, I can see that. So it sounds like you wrote a lot of it kind of based on what you were inspired at the moment. Did you actually set daily writing, say, I'm going to write for one hour, two hours a day? Or did you really kind of wait until the inspiration struck you and then you sat down and started putting it on a page? For my particular personality, the latter worked well for me. Mm -hmm. And I would wait. I mean, I had conscious deadlines that I wanted to, to make. And I knew that I would need to make those deadlines, but I would wait until I'm like, I am ready so that it, so that I wasn't pulling it out of me, but I was allowing it to come out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these things like that sounds spontaneous, but there are things that I have been teaching over the last 10 years. And there's also things that in the moment I was like, this is the perfect example of this principle. And, and it just came. And so there were nights where it's like 9 30, 10 o'clock at night. And all of a sudden I get the bug to get something out, regardless of the fact that I typically go to bed at that time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, you asked me a question go, earlier. Go about ahead. What I learned. Yeah. You asked me what I learned about myself through this process. And I realized I didn't answer it. That was very politician like of me. So I apologize. <laughs> but um, what I learned about myself from this experience is that continual um, exercise of the muscle is I didn't know how to do this before. And then I did it anyway, and I've been really grateful for the fruits of the harvest. And it just encourages me to do the same thing in other aspects of my life. Yeah, and it, it becomes, you know, you become a different person than, than when you went in, I'm assuming. Absolutely. Um, and it brings a lot of joy. One of the reasons why it brings so much joy is because then the circle of friends and influence I have, it's easy for me to encourage them to do the same because I know I have tools to help them. But also like with my own children, I have a son, his, his name is actually Writer, and he's an exceptional writer. And now I think he knows that that's completely possible in his life. There's no barrier for him to think that it's possible for him to write a book too. And so that makes me very happy. Yeah. If, you know, anytime a person creates something like this, like you did with your book, like you just mentioned, it creates that ripple effect that then touches people close to us and far from us. And it just travels, doesn't it? Absolutely. And that's become my new favorite word. Yeah. Ripple. Oh, really? I I love that word too. Yeah. I think it's just, it's, it's so, it's kind of sums up what we're doing here, you know, on, on, as human beings, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's actually going to be part of the title of my next book that I will have out next spring about how to make a ripple in this world. Oh, I love it. Um, here I'm teaching you concepts of confidence. And as you stretch them and exercise them, then you're able to make a difference around you. And so I will have a book out with some strategies again about how you can make a ripple. And um, it's not, um, it's the ripple you make. And sometimes it touches somebody else who then makes a ripple, who then makes a ripple. And that's how you get it to spread. So yeah, it's my new favorite word. I was trying to think of like, a group of people when I was doing this 18 day confidence course, you know, you have like a tribe or my sister said, why don't you look up different animal groupings and see what they are? You know, so like pride, uh, you know, pride is a group of lions. And I don't know if you knew like a, a flock of crows is called a murder. <laughs> I, I did not know that. No. 
<laughs> a block of flamingos is called a stand, which I think is interesting. So it's like whatever the animal is doing, that kind of <laughs> is a group. Um, and so for me, I came up with the idea that the name of the group that I want to be a part of and share in this movement with um, is a ripple. I love That's that. What- um, okay, so tell us about the story. Is it's a unique, interesting title, Purple Crayon Confidence? What's the story behind the title? Yeah, I get that question a lot, which tickles me because that was my goal, and it <laughs> it does kind of call to memory that great children's book, Harold and the Purple Crayon. But that's not what it's about. I love that book, by the way, because he draws his own world, and I think that we get to do that. But it actually came from one of my personal experiences when I was in kindergarten, and you know, in kindergarten, you're, you're watching others to learn how to be in the world. Like, oh, this is where I hang up my backpack. And this is where we sit on the rug. We kind of watch others and copy because we don't know what we're doing. That's how we learn. We learn by watching others. And that's an exceptional way to learn language, walking, talking, all of it. However, at some point that can be detrimental when, when we do what I'm going to share with you in this example. So we were sitting around this big table with our little chairs and we were coloring and we had a, a coffee can in the middle filled with these really thick crayons, which was different than what I had at home. Right. And so we're coloring away and I had taken the color purple because I loved it so bright and vibrant and it was like my color. So I'm coloring away. And then I remember looking around and seeing that the other kids at the table weren't coloring except for one or two. And they were coloring with a gray crayon. And I thought, well, that's weird. So then I asked the girl next to me, I said, why, why are you not coloring? And she said, well, I want, I want the gray crayon. Why do you want gray? Like gray's not even a color. <laughs> like I still don't know the color. It barely counts. Um, so I asked like, well, why do you want the gray crayon? And, and she said, well, it's kind of like silver, right? You know, silver shiny. I, I can kind of get that. So what was interesting was, whereas before I loved purple, And I was so content coloring with purple. But when I looked around that others were waiting for the gray, I thought, oh, I'm supposed to love gray, not purple. Wow. So I put the purple down and waited for the gray crayon with everybody else. And that is so metaphorical for the things that we do. We look around on how to live and we feel like maybe, maybe somebody has it right and we're doing it wrong. And so then we try to do it like them and, Again, great way to learn, but when you set aside something you love for something you think you're supposed to love, that's when your confidence takes a hit. And that's when you start to not even really know who I am and have a sense of self. That is such a great story. And you know, even though you relate it to something that happened to you in childhood, for the for the most part, and a lot of people never get out of that, right? We we like whatever we're kind of told to like or whatever the the media machine puts in front of us, don't we? And we just conform. And we lose that odd on that inner aspect of ourselves, it seems like. Absolutely. And, you know, back in the day, my competition, if you will, and the people I looked at were sitting around that table coloring. Now our world is so much bigger in some ways because of social media, uh, things like Pinterest boards. I mean, there's a million ways to live this life and hobbies to explore and ways to do any one thing. And you can drive yourself crazy trying to do it like everybody else. You know, at one point in my life, I had a girlfriend who I just, I, I totally adored her. Her house was always immaculate, which who doesn't love a nice clean house? 
Um, and I just remember thinking like, oh, I want to be like Amy. I want to be more like Amy. <laughs> uh, and then one day I came to realize I'm like, I can't be Amy because I'm too busy being Kayla. And that's a good thing to do it the way I want. Like just because everyone else at the time, this is years back, everyone else at the time was doing scrapbooking. Just because they were doing it doesn't mean I had to love it because I didn't. I tried. It just wasn't permanent enough for me. I didn't love it. And so getting a sense of it's okay to love something different than everyone else. And when that circle is expanded so wide, you know, the people that we see in our neighborhood, in our church, in our groups that we participate in at the, the sports arenas, on Pinterest and Instagram and Facebook, sometimes it can be so overwhelming if you try to keep up with that instead of just doing you. Yeah. Well, that, and that's the negative downside of the, like you said, the social media is it puts all of our focus out there when the real magic, as you've discovered in your sharing here, is you know looking within and finding out what crayon you want to color with, right? And what you want to do as a hobby. Right. And sometimes it gets so confusing. We're like, I, you can have circumstances that turn you upside down, backwards, you know, where you're like, I don't even know what way's up right now. I don't know who I am. And so in this book, I give you strategies to figure out what that purple crayon is in case you've been coloring with the gray one for so long, you don't remember that it wasn't your crayon. Yeah. And 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 some people, like you said, the, the tools you give them to know themselves in that introspection, they're, they're brand new to that because they've never done that. It's always been, what's the crowd doing? What are they doing? Keeping up with everyone else. And so I like the fact that you give people those I call them like foundational core tools so they can get in touch with who they really are. They never have. Right. And then it becomes something that's um, just ethereal and we're speaking about self-love and figuring out who you are, which there's a lot of that out there. And it brings it down to the tangible and like, what can I do today to figure out what I really love? And and how do I know what it looks like? And how do I know what it feels like? And And I have come across some concepts that will help you to do that, which... I'm so grateful for. Now it feels like I really have a great measuring stick by which I can measure the things in my world, the things that bring me joy and the things that don't. Yeah. So talk about your new course, the Purple Crayon Confidence 18-Day Challenge. I'm assuming it's new. Am I right in that assumption? Yes, absolutely. This is just another vehicle that I've chosen to be able to take this work out to others. Some people learn really great by by reading. but some people also can ex- enhance their learning by having some visuals or having an, a, a community that they can share and bounce ideas off of. And that's what the 18-day online challenge does. There's daily challenges, of course. There's video content from me describing the practices and principles and some stories. There's an online community where you can share the successes that you're having and the struggles that you're having all within the context of self-love and confidence. And this this 18-day course, again, just another vehicle to be able to help people get a sense of themselves. And our first one is actually launching June 18th, which I'm very excited about. And we already have several, I'm, I've been signing books all day because part of the course, you get a free book and a little confidence pack that comes to your home. And so I've been busy behind the scenes trying to just spread this goodness. Well, and and when you reached out to me and mentioned your new course, based on your your work, and we haven't even touched on on the other stuff you've done, based on your book and all your stuff, I was like, uh, yeah, I definitely want to know more about it, and I definitely want to be involved because you've already got like really high street cred with me. Not that that's the end all be all, but just so you know, 
Mark, I think it is. I'm pretty sure people have been looking to you to see what they should do. Well, hey, <laughs> thank you very much for that, that kudos. I appreciate that. But yeah, I was like all over it when you said uh, you got, got the new program. Okay, so it's eight, is, it, is it only, is it 18 days long? And then what happens after that? And walk us through what a person can expect once they sign up and, and, and join. Right. So the confidence course, the challenge is 18 days long. It starts June 18th. Through those 18 days, I think it helps you to get that momentum to realize like, this is a muscle. This is important. I can actually do this at any age. You could be 97 and still take this course. I have a lot of um, families that are doing it together, like mother-daughter duos or all the in-laws are getting together and doing this course, a group of friends, which I think is great. So during the 18 days, my expectation is that I will give tools and show by example how you can get this started, how you can reassess your confidence, uh, take stock of it, and then start to improve on it. And and maybe for some people, that's all they need. They just need the tugboat to take them out to the open waters, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's fabulous. Some people at that point might opt to see like, maybe they want to join some group coaching to take it even to that next level. However, by giving the 18-day challenges and then also the book, which has its own course and content in it, I fully anticipate that somebody can go just through the challenge and feel like they have made a significant leap in their confidence. And then if they also want to engage in more, I have something available for them. But my, my theory has always been to try to over deliver right where you're at. So like when I go to conferences and speak, I try to make sure that people walk away with more than they bargained for and they can feel complete and content in that and not leave them like, ah, it's a cliffhanger. Okay, now you why you got me all excited, but I need to know how. And oh, well, I'll tell you how if you enroll in my next course. You know, I've never been. Yeah. that way. So the 18 days has the ability to be this great start for momentum. And then also if there's somebody who's like, okay, I've gotten a taste, I want more, then I have opportunity for them to engage in more. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, because once they get the tools in, like you said, they are, for the most part, self-sufficient, they can go and just start applying, which that's really where the real work is, I'm assuming. Absolutely. And just getting started, that takes the most energy when we start a new project. The starting is more than just continuing. And because of the group setting that we have, then people are able to continue to stay in that group where there will be, you know, daily quotes and memes and, and inspiration for them to continue on that journey, even if the 18 day challenge is, is where they start and finish. Gotcha. We're never, but you know, yeah, momentum. Yeah. If, if people don't, is it only available from June 18th for 18 days? Or will this be something that someone could sign up in, say, in July or down the road? So we will be having 18 day challenges throughout the year. We don't have the next one set up on the schedule yet. So I, I can't tell you exactly when the next start date is. But a lot of people, if they go to um, my page, KaylaLeah.com on Facebook, Oh, I guess it wouldn't be .com, Kayla Leah on Facebook, then they're able to see when the next challenge is coming up. In case they listen to this broadcast in between challenges, they know when the next one's available. Gotcha. Okay. So so it is a it is a kind of a live thing where you get in when it starts and you and it ends when it ends. And it's not something they can get on demand, at least at this point, it sounds like. Correct, correct. We will be having, hopefully in the fall, um, another segment or vehicle to take this message to the world, which is on demand videos with the whole coursework that's in the book. So it's another way to be able to learn the concepts besides just reading. So 
So we're in the process of getting those all recorded and edited now. And so we will have options for live challenges and then on-demand um, learning so that if you want to sit back at 2 a.m. with your pajamas and a cup of tea, you can take a look at the online videos. Great. Yeah, great. Okay, so that, that the course sounds like it's going to be hugely beneficial to people. I'm, I'm really excited to get into it and increase my confidence for sure. So I want to also talk about your work with Days for Girls. I was blown away by your TED Talk, huge eye-opener. I had no idea, one, being a man, two, living in you know, a first-world country. Um, talk about how you got involved with that organization. Yeah, I love Days for Girls on so many levels. And my first exposure to Days for Girls came when I took a trip to Haiti, just an invitation that um, a PA had offered to me as her friend to come along and help in a mobile medical clinic. And so I was just kind of on fire with this confidence and saying yes to new opportunities because I've always been rewarded to get out that out of my comfort zone. So I went to Haiti and when I was there, I saw so many things in these medical clinics, like 90% of it were women that had these very painful infections that are associated with not having clean feminine products. And I had heard before the name Days for Girls and kind of what they did, but it never really struck me until I was there and saw and experienced firsthand for myself what it looked like to live in a third world country without access to clean feminine supplies. And so when I came back from Haiti, my world had changed quite a bit. And within 10 days, I started a local chapter of the organization, which is global. Days for Girls is global. But I started a chapter locally. There wasn't one in my city. And we were able to get started and just grow so fast where we have thousands of volunteers who help us each year to be able to make a feminine hygiene kit that's washable and reusable because women in developing countries don't have access to supplies. Either they're too expensive they don't buy enough. They're trying to make them last because of how expensive they are, or they just use resources that they can get their hands on, which is pretty meager, you know, bits of cloth or leaves or mattress stuffing, things that aren't really appropriate to manage menstruation every month. So this chapter of mine has been able to make, I think we're like 2,300 kits now within the last two years. That's wow. 2,300 girls or women developing countries that for the next three to five years know that when their period comes, they have something to help them manage it to be able to stay in school because a lot of the girls were dropping out of school because you can't go to school if you don't have anything to manage your period. And a lot of women who are often the main breadwinners for their family in developing countries would have to um, stop working because they weren't able to manage their menstruation. So 2,300, I think 11 is where we're at right now. I have to worry about that. And it's so satisfying. And we, we have shipped kits to with people. It's distributed on the ground with um, teams that teach hygiene and teach about anatomy and about what their period actually is. And so each of these kits are delivered with education. And that's probably one of the more beautiful parts of it. Yeah. Okay. So one thing I want to ask you is, when you go to these countries and see this, uh, this situation, would you say that it's more of a, uh, like what percentage of it is an economic issue as opposed to a, a cultural taboo, we don't want to talk about this or deal with it issue? Thanks for asking that question. It actually varies from country to country. There are some countries that do have some economic resources, but because of the cultural um, 
hesitation to talk about menstruation because it's it's taboo to talk about, then a lot of times, one, they don't know to ask. They're kind of left to fend for themselves and just take care of their own needs. And that's not something that other people are asking them. You know, what are you doing for your feminine hygiene? Do you have what you need? A lot of people, when they start their periods for the first time, think they're dying because they've never heard of it before. Um, then there's other countries that the economic is the economy is so suppressed that being able to have money, like, yes, they might be available, but being able to have the money to buy them is pretty limited. So for example, Haiti is a country that, you know, I went to the first time and was able to return two more times with kits and personally um, have classes to educate and distribute. And we've taken, um, I believe like 1400 and like 90 kits to Haiti in two different trips and most of the girls have seen um, supplies in the marketplace, but they're they're really, really expensive. There are some countries where you would never see a feminine product in a store. Oh, really? Like they're hidden, and if you purchase them, they go in a brown paper bag so that nobody can see them. And so even seeing them as you're out in the market is not something that a young girl would do. So I think that it's both. And that's really the purpose of my TED Talk was to bring awareness to the fact that our hesitancy to discuss such a natural process, even here, even in a developed country in 2018, we don't openly talk about a process that more than 50% of the population has. And that, and because as it ripples outward to other countries and nations, because there's that hesitance and it's taboo and we don't discuss it, then needs are going unmet and opportunities to educate about um, body's processes and what a girl can expect with her body. Those things aren't happening. And so my, my aim with, for the Ted talk was just to bring awareness because when I returned from Haiti and we started the days for girls here and started the work, number one comment I got was I never thought about what other women were doing for their periods. Mm. Now that was for women, you know, men were just like, Whoa, like I've never even, I didn't know this was a problem. And so because of that, I wanted to start to address, like, how do we make it so that it's common knowledge? How do we make it so that everyone's aware that this is a process and it's a process that needs to have materials to manage and that there's no shame in it. It doesn't have to be like shameful and hidden. And, you know, there, I've gotten some flack from it as well. Oh, I can imagine. Which is surprising. I can imagine. You know, yeah. Just because of the nature well, of the topic, right? And there's a lot of people who are like, well, we're not ashamed of it. We're just, you know, you just don't go out and talk openly to people about it. Mm. And I understand that, but there's a difference between shame and discretion. Sure. You know, like discretion is me not openly talking about my period at dinner parties, but shame is when I can't even discuss it with my doctor or I'm embarrassed to buy products at the store or the wrappers that they come in are rustle free. So other people in the bathroom, in the women's bathroom, don't know that I'm menstruating that takes on the tone of shame mm -hmm. instead of discretion. And so because we have called shame discretion, there's a lot of people who aren't willing to talk about it and meet needs or other girls aren't comfortable asking for needs, even in a, even in like Middletown America, right? Even here in our own community, there are girls that maybe they live with dad or maybe they're just not super comfortable with mom and they go to their school nurse and ask her for supplies because they're too embarrassed to bring it up with their parents. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, in, in my mind, once it becomes a, a medical issue and like a, a life safety issue, shame should be kicked out the door. But we are shame. Shame is such a powerful monster, isn't it? Absolutely. Shame is what keeps the women in Nepal in menstrual huts outside of their communities. When they are having the week of their period, they're sent to go sit in a hut and wait before they can come back and are considered clean enough to join their families again. Women die of exposure. Women die from harm from animals in that case. There are women in this world where when they don't have feminine supplies, have increased rates of cancer because of the continual infections that they have by using unclean items. So it's definitely a matter of a health issue. And, and you probably haven't experienced this for yourself. I'm pretty sure you haven't, but a lot of people get infections if they don't have clean supplies and they are extremely painful and they have some lasting damage that can take place if they're not taken care of. And so it, it becomes a health issue for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I, I can imagine, you know, it, talking about this issue raises my uh, awareness of like this, you know, we've in the U.S., we have this issue of, okay, equal pay and equal rights and all this. And the, I guess those are kind of the polished up nice issues that we talk about regarding women in society. But then there's this other area that's getting no love other than the people like you are giving it some love and some attention. It's like this big disconnect. And it's like, gosh, you know, there's, there's real things we need to talk about in the menstrual area and in, in with women period, but we're focusing all our attention on the nice stuff, aren't we? Right. It's much easier to talk about a paycheck or wages than it is this natural process that some, you know, and I understand like for most people, blood means death or injury or dying. And so to talk about menstruation is really uncomfortable. Um, but if we also just talk about like a natural process, like we stock toilet paper in the bathrooms and there's no embarrassment about that. And mm -hmm. so there are health processes that maybe aren't the most pleasant to talk about with people that still get addressed with less shame than menstruation does. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, when I gave my TEDx talk, you know, TED for people who are familiar, usually they've either totally love it or they've never heard about it. There's rarely anybody that's indifferent to TED and TEDx talks, but the whole point is that platform is to have ideas worth sharing and they're meant to be spread and they're meant to share, which is what I wanted to do is to share that there is a cost to the shame and silence around menstruation. However, after I did the talk and then the video came out and started to share it out, I realized that the same reason why this message is so important is the same reason why it's not likely to be the one that you click share on in your social yeah. media. Well, I, I, I checked out the video today and I see it has over 8,000 views. Um, I'm assuming all, obviously those views are going to grow, but are you finding in your experience that it's getting less exposure than you would have anticipated or hoped for? Actually, um, I'm really pleased because it is growing exponentially. You know, it started off slow and it's gaining momentum. And probably because this is a topic near to my heart, I start to see it more everywhere. There are people who are doing podcasts just on this topic. There's there's a gal in New York who has a podcast called The Periodical, and she talks about periods. There's a gal out of um, Australia, which coincidentally, when she was in New York, I was able to connect her with the podcaster. But this gal out of Australia is doing a documentary on it. And she's a filmmaker and um, very well-polished work that she does. And she's doing a documentary just on this topic. There's a young girl, I believe she's maybe in college now, who started a program to be able to bring feminine supplies to local local needs, which is so important. When we, I talked about the developing countries' needs, but 
Here, the homeless shelters, the refugee centers, crisis centers, food banks, they all are in need of feminine supplies, boys and girls club, places like that. And so I encourage people to ask the organizations they work with if the girls have need for feminine supplies. You know, the Ronald McDonald House, I haven't been there personally, but I've heard that they stock the cupboard with diapers for families that have someone in the hospital so they can take care of their other needs. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if they have feminine supplies in their closet because that's not the need that we address. Mm -hmm. That's interesting you bring that up, that even here we, we sweep it under the table. Yes. And there, you know, I'm not saying whether it should or not, but food stamps does not pay for tampons. And so, oh, really? Yeah. So there's this basic need in our society, and we try to meet them with food, water, and shelter. But nobody's asking about this, this silent necessity. Nobody's asking, yeah. how are they taking care of this other health process that happens five to seven days every 28 days? Yeah. And because here, people won't go to school if they don't have supplies. Oh, and I can imagine. Yeah. Why face the potential ridicule, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's more awareness that I see. And of course, I always want more. Mm -hmm. I want for it to be something that in a few years from now, people are like, yeah, we're aware that it's a need and we're doing things to take care of it. Um, Days for Girls, the nonprofit organization, has a goal to reach every girl everywhere, period. Wow. And I that they are like, it doesn't matter where, every girl deserves to maintain her dignity during such a natural process. So the organization, is it a global organization then? It is. And um, you can find more about it at daysforgirls.org. And the concept is getting more days back in school, more days back at work for women and girls who typically would be staying home otherwise. Gotcha. Yeah. And I'll put links to those in the show notes on my underneath my website and on the YouTube post that I put this to for people to go get more information and all your all your links to your stuff. Um, wh- how can people help if they want to get involved in this Days for Girls organization, either locally or globally? Thanks for asking. You know, there are over 800 chapters around the globe. Not all of them are as big as mine. You know, some of them are women that get together or women and men. In fact, my first event was actually started by a man who wanted to take some kits to India. So it, it is crossing both genders, but a lot of the chapters can be found if you go to daysforgirls.org and you can see if there's a chapter near you. You might be surprised that there's a chapter operating right now that you might be able to help with. Um, another way is to just share it out to your family and friends because that spreads the awareness, either the daysforgirls.org website or the TED Talk, anything to just kind of spread the idea that, oh, this might be a need that we can address. Daysforgirls.org also has a donation button for Every $10 that's donated, that's one girl who has a kit for three to four years. And, you know, something I forgot to mention, and I kind of dabbled in it a little bit earlier, was that we don't give out kits without education. Mm. It's not like passing them out. We sit and have classes about their hygiene, their body. And I think if I was to ask the girls what's more valuable to them, the kit or the education, I think they would choose the education. I could imagine. They're in They just don't hear about this. They don't know their basic anatomy. They don't know how many openings they have as a woman. They don't know what's happening with their body. They hear a lot of misconceptions and rumors, which leads to them making poor choices because they don't have all the information. And another aspect of Days for Girls, which I love, because if you get into the um, service community at all, a lot of the concerns is how do we help without hurting? How do we help developing nations without actually hindering their development. It's pretty Mm -hmm. tricky. It is really. 
So one thing that I love about Days for Girls is their broader vision to bring enterprises around the world where women in country are making and selling products for women in their own country, that they're developing the sewing skills, the business and marketing skills, so that when the girls go to the market, they can find the supplies, they see the supplies, it becomes something that is common knowledge instead of something that's shameful and hidden. I love that aspect. So you say that Days for Girls is supporting and helping women in those countries start to develop businesses around this? Yes. In fact, there's a huge training center in Ghana where people go and they're trained to have these enterprises. There's an enterprise running in Nepal. There's one in Haiti. And I've been working to try to hire some women in Haiti to be able to sew these items for the medical clinics in Haiti. And that's kind of a slow process because you're kind of on Haitian time, which is a little bit different mm-hmm. than time here. I think that's part of the time zones, like mountain Pacific and Haitian, like it's a, it's its own time zone. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and I can also imagine cultural differences just in the work environment and work practices too. Would you, would, would you say that's uh, something you run into or? No, I actually went to a sewing clinic down in in Haiti that we're kind of trying to expand what they are making there. They already have dedicated electricity and they already have wages that are more than comparable to their peers. And I was amazed at the quality products that these women were making. Mm. Um, Particular women were either deaf or disabled um, and have a hard time selling goods in the market because of that culture. You end up getting kind of pushed aside. The stuff they were making could rival anything that you can find online. Wow. It was amazing. So um, they have good quality checks and business sense. And, and it's like anything, you know, you, you have to set those practices in place to make sure that there's excellence and there's, there's an opportunity to check and reassess if necessary. Mm. And so that's kind of a little bit slower process, but I'm working on it because I believe in the model where we start to provide for the needs for the people around us. Well, and th- that, like you said, that type of model is what absolutely thrills me. Not only are you, well, you're, you're, you're helping them to help themselves by giving them this opportunity that otherwise would be there. Right. And also when we do our education in the classes, we talk about sharing this knowledge out with other people in the village. I love that when you go to Haiti and you have something that you want to share, that they go and tell. They tell all their neighbors. They'll go out of their way to go and gather the neighbor that lives way at the edge of the village make sure that nobody's missing out. And it's just such a beautiful site. And I see that here in our community too, where people just want to share goodness, like something like this, Mark, like where you have a podcast with somebody that you felt like, Hey, this might be something that somebody needs. And I just, I just love that. And, you know, I don't know if that's the same in, in all the places that days for girls distributes kits, but that's definitely what I've experienced. I mean, down to, if you have like a sticker for a child, they will take it and break it into little squares and give it to all their friends so that all their friends. Have oh my gosh. <laughs> That's great. So touching. It's, it's amazing. Well, and it sounds like days for girls is very well thought out because so many times our, you know, charities or nonprofits in the U S just throw money at these, co- these countries. And then, then you get the corruption, the misappropriation of funds, and it just exacerbates the problem. Because money, as you realize in your work, money doesn't solve any problems. It can create more, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, that's something that they experienced in Haiti just in the last couple of years is the United States wanted to give them their 
overgrowth of peanut harvest that we had. And then the poor peanut farmers in Haiti were like, please don't. We have a product. We've been harvesting this. Don't give us peanuts. We need to be able to sell our goods. So it's really tricky when, like I said, when you go into that arena, being able to help other people in other countries, you have to be really cautious. And one of the last experiences I had in Haiti was being able to go to a clinic and and talk to a nurse that worked there about expanding some programs where she's able to teach women these same concepts. And it's, it's pretty cool when, um, because I'm a foreigner, I'm an outsider. Like I have some basic understanding of what their community is about, but it's always going to be different than it, than coming from somebody from within who can teach and sure. the same concepts. Sure. How, how are you accepted when you go there? Is the reception fairly warm or is there some skepticism from the, the culture and society as a whole or? Right. And again, that, this is going to be different everywhere you travel. But in Haiti, we, we have a, a translator interpreter, which is really helpful. And there's usually, like anywhere, there's hesitation at first to discuss such a, a seemingly personal topic. But when they start to realize that there's knowledge and education that is going to be helpful to them, then it's like opening up the floodgates of questions. Mm-hmm. And, and, too, and this is something I encourage your listeners, and this is what I encouraged in the TED Talk, is that you get to set the tone around menstruation. I have four boys, Mark, mm-hmm. four boys. And I work in days for girls. My house is a maxi pad <laughs> manufacturing, right? Uh, my license plate says period on it, right? There, there, oh, does it? <laughs> there's no, uh, it's a conversation starter. It's either a mic drop, like, hey, period, I'm doing this day, or it's about menstruation. And if you know me, you know it's right. So, um, I got to set the tone in my own home. And I realized before I was setting a tone of shame and silence. So this has been my own personal journey too, to realize like my hiding isn't doing them any favors. You know, their your girlfriends or spouses will appreciate their children, will appreciate their knowledge and sensitivity to the topic and making sure that they meet the needs of the people they love. And same thing, like when I go to those villages and I set this tone like, hey, even when we have cramps and our back hurts, we go and we do the laundry in the in the river. We go and we go to school and we go to work because we are women. And Mm -hmm. they their shoulders back and they have a sense of pride because they can relate as another woman. You know, I tell them like, I have this too. This is something we even ask some of the people there, like, when did you start your period? And we let everybody contribute so that they can realize like, Hey, this doesn't have to be an isolated topic. Like everyone in the community that's a woman is going through this and you can talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. So my is awesome. I love, love, love the women in Haiti. They are super giving um, freely giving of smiles, um, hugs. Um, and a lot of women come up to me afterwards and thank you. Thank you for coming. We did not know this. Thank you for coming. Last time I went, I was able to touch base with some people that had kits distributed to them about 18 months before just to touch base, you know, cause there's sometimes we think that we're being helpful here, yeah. here, have this. And they're like, this is helpful. so I like to gauge obviously that our efforts are not in vain. And this, this sweet girl who, actually was probably a little bit more well off than most Haitians was like, Oh, thank you so much. Yes. The kit is awesome. It's, it looks brand new. It's really well. And it helps me every month and I'm, I'm coming today so I can get one for my mom. Wow. And they are actually doing what they've been designed to do. Days for girls has been around 10 years and we always get feedback from the field and make changes as necessary to be culturally appropriate, climate appropriate, and being able to make sure that, we're not just assuming needs, but that we are trying to meet the needs that we're getting feedback on. Wow. I, well, I hope other 
you know, people who are running nonprofits, organizations can can hear this and also take a cue from Days for Girls because I haven't heard of an organization that's like that much well-rounded and involved in like the end the end result. It's impressive. Well, and what I what I try to do is I approach each of the villages and each of the groups we teach. You know, I teach them about their body and anatomy. I teach them what this kit has to offer. And then I always ask, is this something that you think would be useful for you? Do you want this? Because mm-hmm. they can select in, they can self-select and maybe they're like, I'm fine. I haven't had anybody yet say, nah, I'm good. Sure. <laughs> Usually, they're like, no, really, we want this. This is amazing. So um, I do think that that's important. And whether we're serving needs um, in a developing nation or the needs that we have even right around us, even in our own family is to gauge, like, are we helping? Are we hurting? Is this something that's going to be useful and helpful? Or or is it something that's going to actually hinder their growth? So I think it's a good model. Yeah, I do too. Well, Kayla, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your journey and all the things, cool things you're doing with us. And I will, like I said, link to all of your uh, information on the show notes. Is there any last things you want to close with? No, I'm just really grateful for your willingness to share this out. And I think probably because I'm this huge sharer at heart and I hope that others are the same is a lot of times we feel maybe powerless to change something that's bigger than we are. Um, and by sharing, we can make an impact. And whether that's sharing about the needs of menstruation around the world or that, that best friend or family member or coworker that you think is amazing and they just don't see it themselves. If you share these opportunities, you never know what changes that you can make in somebody else's life. Um, And even just sharing opportunities for service, service fills our bucket so much that um, having an opportunity to look at a local chapter and see what you can donate, whether it's donating um, washcloths or underwear or time, they all have the opportunity to make a difference in somebody's life around the world, but your very own life as well. Great. Absolutely. A great reminder too. Well, Kayla, thank you so much. And uh, we'll... Stay connected with you and follow your stuff as you move forward. I know you're going to do a lot of awesome things in the future. So thank you. Great. Thank you so much for your support. You're welcome. Well, what'd you think? Isn't Kayla awesome? I mean, the amount of energy she has and the enthusiasm she has for helping people in a lot of different areas of life and even people overseas in other countries. I'm just really impressed by her level of commitment and passion to serving people. If you want to know more about Kayla, you can find her at her website, K-A-Y-L-A-L-E-A-H.com. You can also find her on Facebook, just search Kayla Leah. And also, also put links Beneath the show notes on my website, gmarkphillips.com, you can find links to her new project, the 18-Day Challenge, the Purple Crayon Confidence 18-Day Challenge, as well as links to her TED Talk and some of the other things that she does. So I want to thank Kayla again. I really did appreciate her spending the time with us and sharing her journey with us. Last but not least, if you want to catch this and all interviews, it's really easy to do so on YouTube. You know, YouTube organizes these videos in a really nice way, even easier than my own website. You can find my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash gmarkphillips. You can also find clips and behind the scenes things and other content on my social media, which is at gmarkphillips, that's Instagram or Twitter. And I look forward to connecting with you there. So until next time, All the best, health, wealth, and success. Bye-bye.